This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock in this new year of 2016. In this program, I'll talk with two guests who will tell us about the erosion of civilizations, climate answers in the soil, and the danger of killing off your own ecology of microbes in your body. But first, in this new year, I need a little time to talk with you. I suppose I knew it would come to this. We've just flashed past another awful marker towards a new climate age. At the end of 2015, the hottest year ever recorded, it rained in the 24-hour darkness at the North Pole. You remember where you were on September 11, 2001? You knew it was a giant marker where nothing would ever be the same. Scientists around the world felt the same dread and awe in 2007 when the Arctic ice melted back, revealing a dark sea to the sky for the first time in many thousands of years, maybe even in millions of years. It wasn't supposed to happen this century. We knew then the Arctic would never recover. The pendulum swung towards the great melting. More heat from the sun would be absorbed by the planet, changing the energy balance not just in the Arctic, but everywhere. We've run interview with scientists like Dr. Jennifer Francis of Rutgers, explaining how the loss of that white shield at the top of the world and a warming Arctic has changed the jet stream. With less difference between the polar cold and the tropics, those high atmospheric winds have morphed from a powerful west-to-east stream to a meandering river. That river has bends that tend to freeze over regions and extending the breadth of continents and beyond. As Paul Beckwith has told us, what you get on the ground depends on which side of the stream you are on. It can be extra hot in the west and extra snowy in the east, or vice versa. Lately in the northern hemisphere, we have not had the record-breaking hurricanes that slammed into North America in 2005. We have had straight-running power winds called derechos. Multiple massive hurricanes called typhoons in the southern hemisphere hit East Asia this year. The Philippines was raked over time after time. What the Northern Hemisphere experienced in late 2015 reminds me of this quote from Dr. James Hansen in his book, Storms of My Grandchildren. He wrote, Continent-sized frontal storms packing the strength of hurricanes. Robert Scribbler reminded me of that, and that is what we have really had in this December. Hansen writes about such megastorms as coming in the future in the next generation. I say we are seeing it now. In fact, we've just experienced another transcontinental storm stretching from California beyond Scandinavia with waves reaching Russian Siberia. This story is written in heat maps of the ocean, as measured from satellites. Scientists say up to 90% of the excess heat or energy created by a more carbon-rich atmosphere, has been soaked up by the oceans. That's a slow process, slow to heat and slow to release. With that buffer, there is at least a 30-year delay for the impacts of our carbon emissions. The climate disruption we're feeling now is from rising greenhouse gas emissions in the 1980s. We poured in almost as much again since then. The oceans of the world communicate slowly, sometimes at great depth, using the system known as the Great Conveyor Belt. 
The seas have been hot and getting hotter around Australia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and in East Asia generally. That heat has been moving downward towards the depths for about 15 years since the last great El Nino of 1997-98. It mixes with colder waters below, which rising create the La Nina weather systems we've taken for granted in this new century. That cycle has to break. It always does. And now we have El Nino, but with the hotter seas, it's El Nino on steroids. It's the strongest El Nino recorded since the development of science. You will hear endless collections of weather people on television explaining the floods and soon snowstorms and even the strange warming in eastern North America on El Nino. That's why the cherry blossoms bloomed all up the East Coast. That's why folks in Philadelphia wore shorts and T-shirts on Christmas Day, they say. I've seen a report that out of over 200 local and national newscasts monitored, only one even talked about the possible role of global warming. That's in the United States. The other suspect, and notice we are never the suspects, the other suspect is called changes in the jet stream. Well, that's true. But why don't they ask, and why don't we ask? Why is this such a strong El Nino? Why has the jet stream changed? Why is the weather so weird? And why is it never going to be normal again? Usually scientists tell us El Nino has little impact on the Atlantic Ocean. It's an affair of the Pacific. And yet, we now see storms that blow over Texas, Missouri, and eastwards seeming to continue on. In just days, there are record winds in Iceland and still more flooding across Ireland. Scotland, England, and Scandinavia. In those ocean heat maps, we can see raging heat in the seas off New England. It's been so hot, the species are changing. It's still relatively warmer this winter, but that warmer water is being pushed away from Greenland by a new phenomenon that will stay with us likely for centuries. We now realize that massive meltwater from Greenland has created a pond of cold water in the very North Atlantic. It's like putting ice into a drink, and the ocean there is colder than it was even with global warming. So where are the hot waters of the Gulf Stream to go? They are pushed lower, heading towards Europe. The clash of the Greenland cold blob and these record hot waters create megastorms and a storm track that is battering the British Isles again this winter. Centuries-old towns that have not flooded since the Middle Ages are flooded now. Historic bridges have washed away. In England, they call this Storm Frank, but it stretches from Spain to the North Pole. Yes, the mania to contain everything in concrete has had an effect there. All those new suburbs and their roads, all the moors drained to raise grouse for the rich, all our activities have disturbed nature's buffers for heavy rains. Does any of that really matter when more than a foot of rain drops from the sky in just 24 hours? No one alive in Great Britain has seen anything like this. It doesn't stop there, or even with the big floods in Norway. The heated waters are pouring up the Norwegian coast and into the Arctic, above Finland and above Russia. There is a rural inhabited area in central eastern Siberia called Katanga. According to Wikipedia, the previous December high for Katanga was minus 0.2 degrees C, or 31.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That was the record high. And the average high in December is minus 25.5 C, 
or minus 13 Fahrenheit. That's the general average. Blogger Robin Wenstra tells us that there in the Arctic Circle this December in Katanga, it was 79 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 degrees Celsius. I can't begin to tell you how insane and how impossible that is. Here I'm just going to quote from Robert Scribbler's blog. He says it so well, nobody can say it better. Unprecedented doesn't even begin to describe rain over the Arctic sea ice above the 80-degree north latitude line on the evening of Tuesday, December 29, 2015. It's something we'd rarely see during the summertime. But this rain is falling through the black polar night during the coldest time of the year. There, over the Arctic sea ice today, the rains began in wintertime. As the first front of warm air proceeded over the ice pack to the north of Svalbard, the rains fell through 35 to 40 degree Fahrenheit air temperatures. It splattered upon Arctic Ocean ice that rarely even sees rain during the summertime. Its soft pitter-patter, a whisper that may well be the sound to mark the end of a geological age. For we don't just see rain over the Arctic sea ice north of Greenland during winter time, or we used to not, but the warmth that liquid water falling through the black of what should be a bone-cold polar night represents something ominous, something ushered to our world by human fossil fuel industries' tremendous emission of heat-trapping gases, gases that in the range of 400 parts per million CO2 and 485 parts per million CO2 equivalent are now strong enough to begin to roll back the grip of winter. Gases that if they keep being burned until we hit a range of between 550 to 650 parts per million of CO2, will likely be powerful enough to wipe out winter as we know it, entirely over the course of long and tumultuous years of painful transition. What does the beginning of winter sound like? It's the soft splash of rain over the Arctic Ocean sea ice during what should be its coldest season. That's a quote from Robert Scribbler's blog. So you see, that is a 9-11 moment that hardly anyone else knows about. In fact, it's far greater than mere terrorism or human wars over religion and oil. At Christmas 2015, we saw, as Robert says, the beginning of the end of winter. I suspected the time would come when I could just rebroadcast old radio ecoshock shows, since the truth about climate change is already known already told, and now already come. I said what we've seen is just another transcontinental storm. That's because I first noticed one in 2006, the year I began this radio show. I had to dig out that old Radio Ecoshock show from the archives on our website. I think you'll agree it's eerily familiar, except now we've had another 10 years of great science, very driven science, to explain why these things are happening. So here it is, from Radio Ecoshock in 2006, as I describe a transcontinental storm that sounds so much like today. Time, weather, and... Across the UK, at least 10 people were killed as trees snapped and walls collapsed. On the roads, heavy-duty trucks were blown over like toys. For the first time in its history, virtually the entire rail network was shut. It's bad. 
hundreds of utility poles have snapped in half. It's the worst thing we've ever seen, really. No power anywhere. In the Dutch port of Rotterdam, a major alert was sparked after a ship broke loose from its mooring, smashing an oil pipeline. On the roads, heavy-duty trucks were blown over like toys. This storm has torn across northern Europe, leaving chaos and death in its wake. Missouri's governor says this is the worst natural disaster in his state's history. And the same storm whipping up fierce winds in Switzerland, powerful enough to lock a, knock a locomotive and several cars right off the rails. The storm is now sweeping northward into Scandinavia and eastward towards Poland. And backing up traffic for miles. I've seen this thing get shut down, but never like this. It's never been this bad. Devastation is also piled up on roads from Texas to North Carolina. Since Friday, at least 66 people in nine states have been killed in storm-related deaths. And they always find a chorus of meteorologists to claim, well, no, it's not climate change. Sometimes things just get stormy. Maybe it's El Nino. Maybe it's spots on the sun. Maybe it's harp coming out of Alaska. Anything but climate change. This is Alex Smith of Radio EcoShock reporting on the new stormy future, what we should worry about when it comes to climate change and storms. The meteorologists warn against drawing an immediate link between these extreme weather conditions and the effects of climate change. Do these media reports worry you? Take a deep breath. Humans are hardwired to fear extreme climate events. Mammals instinctively don't like big windstorms, big piles of snow, or big waves crashing against the shore. These are not just the first big storms. A trio of storms that hit Europe in 1999 were worse than the January blow and killed more people. History still remembers violent weather there in the 1300s. People thought those storms were caused by God due to our sins rather than climate change. Our only remedy for this natural fear and our religious reactions to it is science. The problem is, now the science is scarier than Jove or Jehovah. The new mantra goes like this. Meteorologists say you cannot prove this latest strong weather came from climate change. Climate scientists agree the causes of a specific storm cannot be certain, but the long-term impacts of the atmosphere are predictable. The Earth will get hotter. A lot of that heat will be soaked up by the oceans. Warmer oceans mean more water gets sucked up into the atmosphere, causing more violent precipitation, which could be rain or snow. The hotter oceans also add more power to existing storms. We may not get more storms, but those that do form will be stronger. Nobody needs to be reminded that all kinds of hurricane records were set in 2005. Hurricane Wilma was the biggest ever recorded, and Katrina the most damaging to a developed city. There were so many hurricanes, the weather experts ran out of internationally accepted names for them. Then, 2006 was relatively quiet. Again, the studies of long-term records by people like Kerry Emanuel show we may not have more storms, but they will be more powerful. What does it all mean? Let's make a couple of homespun observations about this recent series of storms. And tonight, this massive storm running the length of the country, continues to dump snow, ice, and freezing rain. Number one, this was a transcontinental storm. Within the same week, 
weird and wild weather stretched all the way from California to New England and hit England, Scandinavia and all of Europe from west to east. What's unusual about this storm is that it will affect all of Germany and not just certain zones. That is a very rare event. Most of the northern hemisphere was engulfed in an extreme weather event. That is worth worrying about. As the climate becomes destabilized by carbon emissions and various feedbacks, is it possible we may see global storms? Just think about what this might mean to the economy and how limited rescue efforts might be in the future superstorm. And there's no word from the electricity companies when the power will be back. Observation number two, the European storm was not a hurricane. Hurricanes and their tropical counterparts, the typhoons, involve a spinning mass of air and water. The speed and damage of the wind depend upon rotation around a central vortex. But the blast that hit Europe was described as a river of wind crossing the continent. It was almost as though the jet stream had dipped down to earth, blowing along the surface at over 100 miles an hour. That is the sort of science fiction scenario described in the 1994 book Heavy Weather by Bruce Sterling. Following a period of industrial damage to the Earth's atmosphere, a more or less permanent storm developed in the U.S. Midwest, a new category beyond our current ranking system. Here in the real world, meteorologists are already discussing the need to add a new class, the F6 hurricane, to top the existing worst-case F5 type. With climate change, they expect storms stronger than anything humans have seen in the last 10,000 years. But again, the rest of us have to wonder if the jet stream will not become a bigger factor for the northern hemisphere. When we looked at the big satellite pictures and maps, there was a strong line running right across the southern half of North America and then jagging up toward Europe. Are disturbances to the jet stream linked to the transcontinental storms like the ones we just experienced? More science has to investigate that. In California, five straight nights of freezing temperatures threatened to destroy 75% of the state's billion-dollar citrus crop. If we're a total loss from this point, we would have lost $700 million. Observation 3. North Americans already know the price of their fruits and vegetables will go up in the next few weeks. That is because up to 75% of the fruit and winter vegetables for North America come from just a few valleys in Southern California. Those valleys were hit by freezing temperatures that put ice around the crops when only 30% had been harvested. Governor Schwarzenegger estimated a billion-dollar loss for the citrus industry alone. The point is, climate instability will damage the world's ability to feed itself. Higher prices for oranges are only an inconvenience for the rich. But the poorest people will starve by the millions as rising temperatures, storms, and reduced water supplies reduce our output of wheat, corn, and rice. Lester Brown of the Earth Policy Institute says a change of just a half a degree could reduce the rice crop by 20%. And we are going to get a lot more than that, perhaps 2 to 5 degrees change. The storm is an early warning about the coming food deficit as climate destabilizes agriculture. What do we learn from these storms? Our energy and transportation systems are complicated and delicate. They need to be stormproofed, but that's a giant economic project, taking decades. Can we afford it economically? Can we do it? These are all direct costs brought on by climate change through fossil fuels. Countries that adapt may stumble through. Those who don't react to the new climate imperative will fail. Business and personal lives will be repeatedly interrupted by jagged, damaging power outages. It's hard to say how people will react. 
like passengers rushing to the high side of a boat, there has been a stampede of political pronouncements on climate change action. Ultra-conservatives, even big oil companies, are saying it is time to act. The media are developing climate change desks, and newspapers devote whole features to it. It's the hot topic, for now. Of course, humans have a notoriously short attention span. Soon we'll all be sick of hearing about it, and the big media spotlight will move on to some other celebrity scandal or war. We may say some Oceanside real estate will go down in value or be relegated to seasonal use only. Storm surges will wipe out billions of dollars in value, and insurance will be impossible to get. That's already happening. We may have to put most of the state of Florida in that category. One more conclusion. As the decade progresses, the price of food will continue to escalate from a minor budget item to something as large as the mortgage. The ocean grabs enough heat to act like a 30-year buffer. Our current climate troubles come from carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions from the late 1970s. But experts estimate half our greenhouse gas emissions went into the atmosphere since 1970. That means you ain't seen nothing yet. It also means that all the new clean energy we add now and all the CO2 we manage to conserve or reduce will have no impact until about 2036. For the first time in our recent consumerist history, we will have to act for the next generation even though there is no direct benefit for ourselves. Can we do it? Or will we party like it's 1999? It's true we can't blame one storm on climate change, but we do know some storms will be much worse because of global warming. Those extreme events may finally spook the herd into action. When older people tell newscasters, I've never seen anything like this. When new records are set. When the German train system closes down for the first time. Hell, they didn't even close the whole system when it was being bombed in World War II. The rest of us are not overreacting. Nature is trying to tell us something. We are doing something wrong, and it isn't mystical or religious. It is factual, measurable, and all powered by fossil fuels. This is Alex Smith reporting from Radio EcoShock. But this storm that used to happen once every century could come once every 10 years, and maybe more often than that. You can expect significant flooding every two years. So those are the changes that we are seeing for the future. An abandoned cargo ship loaded with hazardous materials is being battered by stormy seas in the English Channel. French and British tugboats are trying to prevent the vessel from going under and creating a massive chemical spill. That was a rebroadcast from Radio EcoShock 2006. I have to admit, even though I love it, it's painful to make this Radio EcoShock show. I hope it's not too painful for you to hear. For whatever strange reason, it hurts me to think of rain falling in the winter Arctic. I know that means more people flooded out of their peaceful homes, good people flooded out or blown out of them further south. I know that means millions of trees will die in California from the drought, including some of the ancient giants. I know that farmers will struggle, and we will pay more for what can be run through the great weather gauntlet. I know the creatures in the sea are suffering. I know it will get harder and worse. I know too much. Over Christmas, I played with my grandson. We made towers where marbles rolled down through mazes. We read stories about lions and elephants. 
Will they still exist when he's grown? Will everything around him be tossed about by fires, strange frosts, weird rains? What will I tell him if we give up and stop trying to save what's left? What will you tell the children that you did during the great climate crisis? All this was driven deeper by the sudden news that over Christmas we nearly lost a powerful climate warrior. You may remember how Daphne Wysham organized the conference call of mayors and activists against building more fossil fuel infrastructure, things like pipelines and oil ports, coal ports. One was just approved in Australia, a horrible thing. For eight years, Daphne hosted the syndicated radio show Earthbeat. She recommended Radio Ecoshock to those stations. Daphne has been fighting to save the climate from her new home in Portland, Oregon. Just before Christmas, Daphne and her partner suddenly found themselves plunging into a cold mountain river, their car sinking fast. She was deep in the water, gulping air from a tiny pocket for many long minutes before a sheriff's deputy managed to rescue her. Both Daphne and her partner were airlifted to a Reno hospital. Both are going to recover. Daphne has already declared another year of continuing battle to prevent catastrophic climate change. We need her so badly. So, life is short and tenuous. We have a few thousand years of human history behind us, and millennia yet to come for all the creatures. What changes will we leave in our short visit here on Earth? I shudder to imagine what our descendants will think of us as we rush to buy more things in the stores, to fly off on tropical vacations, to waste away the world. Or did we strive to localize food without petrochemicals? Did we walk or bike more than drive? Did we use social media and circles of our friends to create allies? Is this the year, after the polar rain, after the transcontinental storms, that we break out of the deadly paradigm of the old fossil age? You decide what you do with your life and powers. I'll keep making radio and keep talking with scientists and activists. I'll wrap up this selfish little chat with a powerful comment left on the Radio Ecoshock blog following last week's optimistic talk by scientist and author Tim Flannery. Listener Wanda Harding wrote this. I would like to be positive, but it seems to me that all these solutions are dreamed up to allow for the current capitalistic system to continue when, and I'm going to say it this way, we know that is really a big part of the problem. I do not see any ideas about reducing consumption, especially for the rich, less flying, less buying. We just want to keep buying cars and stupid plastic stuff that we do not need. I do not hear anything about coming up with a whole new global culture that is not about consuming, especially things we do not need and activities we shouldn't be doing, like professional sports and NASCAR. Also, Tim brings up women in developing countries needing birth control. Yes, they do, and I'm all for them having it, and I bet they really want it. However, why do we allow the upper classes, the rich, to do whatever they want? Why do they not have to change their lifestyles? Oh, wait, gee, they have to buy an electric car. When someone says there is a law passed that states that anyone making over maybe $150,000 a year is legally required to put some type of renewable energy system on their home, then we will start to make some progress. When the rich or even the business sector is legally limited 
to how much they can fly, or even if they can fly, then I'll believe we are making progress. When we start to really go in the direction of small farmers and use that as a jobs creation program and give out land grants for people to do so, and then they don't have to travel to work in rural areas, negating the necessity of a car, at least not having to run one every day, then I'll start to believe we are making progress. So far, all we do is come up with gadgets, and we still do not believe we have to change our behaviors and lifestyles. Thank you, Wanda Harding. You see how it is? I know many of my listeners are powerful and articulate people. I appreciate so much all the emails you send me. You can write me anytime, radio at ecoshock.org. In fact, without listener tips, ideas, and criticism from all over the world, I simply could not continue this program. Radio Ecoshock has become listener-powered. Thank you for giving me another year of opportunity, as hard as the news may be. I've got some great guests lined up for you, including a top scientist from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to explain this year's Arctic report card that's coming up. But let's get to our first guests of 2016 right now. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. We are going to take a big journey into time and across the globe. Eventually, we'll get right back to the center of your own body. Our tour guides are Dr. David Montgomery from the University of Washington and biologist Anne Beakley. David and Anne, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you. I know the two of you just released a new book, The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. That's a personal journey with a big message for us all. But at the risk of being rude, I'd like to start with you, David. A recent guest, Benoit Lambert, and several listeners asked for this interview based on your previous book, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. That's coming back, and not only because we may farm ourselves right out of the soil in this century, but also because of that promise we could reverse the process, putting big amounts of carbon back into the soil, and maybe, maybe avert catastrophic climate change. Okay, well now, to be blunt, we're all busy people. Why should we care about what happens to dirt? Can you give us the nutshell on that one? Well, yeah, you know, if you look around the world today at the areas that we sort of find to be perennially troublesome hotspots, um, places like Syria and Libya, for example, they're places that long ago those societies essentially degraded and destroyed their soils, and they've been impoverished ever since. So if we, we can look at healthy, fertile soil quite literally as the foundation, both ecological and economic, for healthy, thriving civilizations. And that's something that all of us really have a stake in. And if you then take it sort of further to our, uh, our own food and nutrition and bodies, as we do in the new book, there's connections to our personal health as well. Yet we tend to take soil for granted. And this has gotten societies into trouble in the past. But as you alluded to, there's certain causes for optimism these days in terms of thinking about what a different way of thinking about our soil can do for some of the big problems we face. Well, it's a bit different now because we're globalized. I mean, if China right now is buying up farmland in Africa, if that land gets overused and then can't produce 
there are global repercussions. Don't you think it's a bit of a game changer when we can't just move on to a new continent and try farming there? No, exactly. That is the big concern for this sort of most recent round of sort of land use abuse and soil degradation that we're going through. Societies in the past have been able to sort of you know move laterally to different places to new and fresh soils, and the United States is an example of a of a country that has done this over the last several hundred years. But we're really out of land that we might potentially farm over the long run that we're not already farming. So we don't really have anywhere else to go if we spoil the the health of the land this time around. We we really have to get it right this time. Yeah, I don't think the soils on Mars are going to cut it. No, they're, they're, you know, you look at the chemistry, it's really sort of battery acid. It's not really healthy, fertile soil, and they're missing the microbes for all that we know, and the atmosphere is not that conducive. No, we're not. If we ever terraform Mars, it's going to be a long time from now. It's not getting us through this century. I was surprised to learn from you that soil erosion was already a problem in America before there was the United States. The fathers of the country wrote about it. What was happening in colonial America? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the crop that got colonial America off the ground economically and its relationship with, with Europe, so that goods would keep going back and forth and, and feed the sort of the fuels of the economic fire, was tobacco. And tobacco was a crop, the way it was cultivated colonially, and, and in some places still today, was very erosive and hard on the soil. So you could essentially get three to five years of a very productive, profitable crop out of a piece of land that you'd cleared before you had to move on to fresh land and clear again and start the process all over again. And that led in part to the rise of plantation agriculture because they needed large acreages to be able to keep moving around where one farmed uh, over time. And the degradation of the soil over time in colonial North America became important in the sense that it started to decrease crop yields, it started to impact the economy. And people at the very top of American society, the highest echelons, people uh, like Washington and Jefferson and Franklin, noticed the problem and worked on trying to bring crop rotations in and fill in gullies and to try to work to, to rebuild soil fertility. But the vast majority of planters in the colonies did not sort of follow those kind of recommendations. And it gradually, as Washington predicted, drove the American people inland, westward, for, to continue the search for new and fertile land on the other side of the mountains. But even when they got there, I've seen a photo of a church in Iowa that's about eight feet above the surrounding lands. Can we lose that amount of soil that fast? Oh, yeah. You know, year to year, it doesn't seem to happen all that fast. But if you keep up something that goes even just like a few millimeters a year, if you keep that up for centuries, it can really add up to burning through the topsoil. And that example of the the churchyard, it's it's perched on a a, a person-high pedestal of soil as the surrounding farmlands uh, eroded away is a pretty dramatic example, but it's a good illustration of essentially what can happen over time if we have practices that lead to eroding soils faster than we're rebuilding them or than, than in fact, nature can, can make them. But what are we going to do here, David? I mean, we can't give up farming. That's how we feed the billions of people on the earth. Oh, yeah. No, we got what we need to do is figure out ways of farming that can actually restore and rebuild and then maintain soil fertility and the physical body of the soil itself, even while we use it to intensively grow food. And I've spent the last six months actually touring around farms around the world looking at farmers whose practices can actually do that and and turn this problem around. It's a a set of processes that I sort of first became aware of actually by watching my wife garden and transform our yard in North Seattle from a barren lot into a lush garden. And the idea that you could 
through the way you managed organic matter on the landscape, reignite the microbial fires, the microbial life that fuel the turnover of nutrients that drive soil fertility. It was a real eye-opener to me. And then those same kind of principles, it turns out, are things that are being practiced in conservation agriculture to actually rebuild fertility to soils, improve crop yields, sequester carbon in agricultural soils, things that you can view as long-term investments in our ability to keep our agricultural enterprise actually fruitful and productive over the long run. In the big agribusiness, it seems like we're almost doing hydroponics. I mean, we just use the soil as something to hold the plants upright while we feed them fossil fuels, but we're going to run out of fossil fuels eventually, or maybe they'll be banned as climate disruption unfolds. If we let our soil become lifeless places, what happens then? Well, then you can, if we, if we really play it to conclusion, we're back to those examples of Libya and Syria, because that's sort of the end game. We don't want to get there. And you're right about the sort of 20th century philosophy of looking at soil as just something to hold the plants up while we add the nutrients. That's going to have to change this century for a host of reasons, not the least of which is as the price of fossil fuels goes up, whether from scarcity or from design as we try and wean ourselves off of them, it would behoove us to try and figure out less energy-intensive ways to farm and re-enlisting the microbial allies that plants have in the so- in soils and doing that on our farms is a way to try and, and push that forward. And it turns out that's sort of a would require a change in thinking of agricultural practices from one of treating the soil as a medium to hold those chemicals that we would add to fertilize the ground to instead trying to recultivate the microbial life with organic matter that would help accelerate the processes of both nutrient extraction from from rocks and minerals, but also the turnover and the recycling of the nutrients that are in that organic matter. And that requires a different set of practices, a different way of thinking about the soil and prioritizing soil health and those practices that can rebuild uh, the the health and integrity of the biological component of soils, particularly microbial life and then the larger soil life that feeds on them and essentially functions like tiny livestock in our soils. It's fairly easy to picture about how, you know, sort of the livestock we know, cattle and bison and sheep and so forth, how their manure helps to close the cycle of returning nutrients back to the land. Microbial life below ground does very similar things, but it's out of sight, out of mind, and literally invisible. But it can be just as important in terms of maintaining fertility. But to cultivate the beneficial life in the soil, we have to change what we call conventional agriculture to practices that actually foster and and support that life. How did we get this far into the interview without saying the word plow? (laughs) Yeah, if, if you look at the, the, the one of the big forces that has driven the degradation of soils around the world, the plow is you know comes immediately to mind, and that was a, a major thrust of the book Dirt: The Erosion of Civilizations. Where, as a geologist, I started to look into what sort of the factors that helped drive the decline of ancient societies, and I ended up writing essentially a history of farming, and the plow played a big role in causing the erosion of soils around the world, where in those places where it was used, and. It really did it two ways. One, from just direct movement of soil. When you, when you plow across a hillside, you're moving dirt. And if you keep going at the same direction and bias over the long run and keep doing it, you're moving stuff downhill, you're accelerating the removal of soil off of the hilltops and parking it in the valley bottoms. And that can reduce the total area that you could have to farm. But what the plow also does is what it's designed to do, it inverts the soil. Uh, it leaves the soil bare and vulnerable to erosion by wind or rain for some portion of the year. And that can allow soil erosion to race ahead of soil production 
such that you're actually losing the you're losing soil. And if that plays out over long enough, centuries as it turns out, you can essentially strip the soil right off the landscape. And it can take nature a long time to put it back because nature forms soils fairly slowly. But the lesson that Anne taught me in our yard was essentially that people, through the application of labor and energy and, and organic matter and enlisting microbial helpers, trillions of microbial assistants, we can actually rebuild soils uh, much faster than nature tends to do on her own. Well, I am a backyard gardener, so I'm pretty excited to be talking to Anne about that in just a minute. I want to cover just a couple more things from your previous work. I've had a series of guests talking about how to put carbon back into the soil and using biochar as a longer-term solution for climate change. Is this serious stuff? Can it work? Uh, The short answer is yes. Can it actually sort of solve the climate problem? Well, that's sort of a bigger question that I'm not going to give you a solid answer on because I've seen very widely disparate estimates of how much carbon we could park back in the soil. But the key answer from my perspective is the farming practices that actually um, return carbon back to the land through cover cropping and encouraging, again, this microbial life to, to increase the standing stock of, of organic matter in soils. You know, if we could do that over agricultural land globally, it would take a huge bite out of the carbon in the atmosphere that we've added over the last century and a half. Biochar is a really interesting and very effective technology for parking carbon. It can it can it takes a long time for it to break down. You know, it obviously doesn't store it forever, but it can store it in forms that uh, that take a long time to break down, and it doesn't directly influence the fertility of the soil in the sense that the plants aren't sucking up the charcoal. But it, it I like to view it as you're building habitat for microbes that can then assist in the cycling of nutrients, and it can can boost fertility in that regard. And it's also really good at holding moisture, holding water, something that could be very useful in terms of a changing climate. Uh, And I look at the the whole issue about whether we should be doing practices in agriculture, uh, both the cover cropping angle and the biochar angle, that can increase the carbon content of our soils is something that it's one of the few investments we could make that could simultaneously help feed the world of tomorrow, rebuild soil fertility, but also help draw down atmospheric carbon dioxide. And many of the practices that actually help build soil carbon also require less in the way of of fossil fuel inputs. So you're not only sequestering carbon, you're turning down emissions if we've made many of these kinds of changes in agricultural practices. But I do know the French government brought carbon farming, they call it agroecology, to the Paris COP21 meeting. Have you heard any plans by any government in the world to start restoring soils in a serious way? Uh, no, that Minister LaFalle's pr- uh, proposal to do that was the first time I'd heard the ideas being taken seriously at that level, and I think it's absolutely fabulous because we really do need to aggressively move towards doing that. And the farms that I've looked at in the last six months who have been increasing the carbon content of their soils fall right into that range that he was talking about. It's saying, you know, 0.4% a year or half a percent of soil organic matter per year is as feasible to, to reintroduce back into soil. So you look at the net acreage of farmland around the world, if we could do that everywhere and do it aggressively, it could make a huge difference. And it's it's one of the few technologies that's available uh, that could actually uh, improve the bottom line on farms uh, by reducing our agrochemical inputs. It, it really is an idea whose time has come. Uh, the, I'm working on a new book now that sort of explores that, that, that through this farms around the world. And we should be promoting the, those ideas in a very, very serious way. 
and not just for the climate issue, but also to help solve the problem of how we're going to feed ourselves in the future. And it would also help with the biodiversity problem, because to a, a large degree, if we look at the area of the continents that are covered by agriculture, the kind of life that's going to be surviving along with us over for the next several hundred years, what we do on our farms is going to make a big difference to the species that are going to be able to stick around over the long run. Uh, and w- for all those reasons, we ought to be encouraging those kind of activities. This is Radio Ecoshock. We've been talking mostly about David Montgomery's earlier book, Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. But when we get to soil restoration, Montgomery has a research partner who has experimented in their own back garden, biologist Ann Bilke. And let's get you in here. What was the challenge in your Seattle backyard, and what did you do about it? Yeah, what happened was I had long, long, long wanted a garden. And when we finally uh, were able to buy a house in Seattle, one of the reasons that we bought it is that it had this big side yard. And growing in that side yard was sort of this thicket of dandelions and maybe almost century-old grass. And so I saw this as one big blank slate. So what we did when we started our project was we peeled all of that right off of the lot. And then when we looked at our soil, we went, oh, my God, what are we going to do? This stuff is kind of sandy, khaki, light-colored. It's filled with a lot of rocks because of Seattle's glacial history, and there was just hardly any organic matter at all. And we also got stuck sort of because of construction delays and so forth with putting the plants in the ground at about the worst time of the year possible, late July. And once the plants were in the ground, I had done enough gardening to know that we needed to get something on top of this soil, both to start feeding the soil, and which thereby feeding the plants, but also to help us keep water in the ground during that first summer. So that's kind of where it all started. It may seem like a small point, but if I dump a ton of manure on my back garden, my neighbors will not thank me. How did you get around that? <laughs> well, that's interesting, uh, because before we had our house, I brought manure home to the place that we were renting, and it wasn't our neighbor that objected so much. Um, oddly enough, it was my husband <laughs> who said, what is that smell and what have you done? And I tried to calm him down and I told him, this, this smell will go away, but just wait till you see what it does to the plants. And in the case of the garden where we're now living, I didn't get any animal manures. By that time, we had sort of blown our budget on the various other things for the garden and the organic matter that we got came very locally. It came from uh, me collecting neighbors' leaves, in particular oak leaves make a really nice ingredient for a, a mulch. And every time I heard the sound of an arborist wood chipper in the neighborhood, I would track them down and pressure them to drop the wood chips off in our driveway. And then the other great source of organic matter, it's a, a source of nitrogen, is coffee grounds and espresso grounds. And there's, you know, heaps and heaps of that stuff laying around town. So those were sort of my my three main ingredients. And then later on, we moved uh, onto a worm bin and began doing a little bit of vermicomposting. So, and now we get to a big plot twist. You are researching how to restore microbial life to the soils, but then something changed in your life that helped result in this new book with David. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, sure. So we'd been going along thrilled and enthralled with what the microbial world had done to transform our soil and our garden, and, and that had transformed our lives. There's no doubt about that. But then uh, in about 2011, I got the kind of phone call from one's doctor that you never want to get. And I learned that I had a malignant cancer. Not only that, but that this cancer was caused by a microbe, by a virus. And so this sort of whiplashed my head, you know, right back the other way. And I wondered, oh, my God, what really is this microbial world? This has got this huge duality about it. You know, on the one hand, hugely beneficial, um, not only my experience, but we know through human history that microbes have interacted with us a lot through infectious diseases. So all this is sort of percolating around in our lives and in our minds. And it was around that time that we began to also dig into some of the microbiome research. And so the microbiome, it's funny, it's sort of this old field, but it's also sort of this new field. And it's, it's, we've known for a long, long time that microbes live on us. And certainly the plant scientists know that, that microbes live in the soil and on plants. But the new angle on all of this is that we're now able to figure out what some of these microbials are, like who, who are their members, uh, what are the genomes of these microbes, and what do their genes allow them to do? And it, it, it turns out that in many respects, we are more microbial than we are ourselves. And so as we're, you know, parsing through this research, and I'm recovering from a horrendous surgery from cancer, it just sort of formed a backdrop for where, where does our health really come from? You know, is it from doctor's offices and drugs? But, you know, what about this, this whole new field of research that's turning up a lot of evidence that microbes are, uh, you know, in some ways underpinning the health of ourselves? That was sort of the big plot twist in the book and how we then began to really dig into the human biology end of things. We've talked with David about how our methods of agriculture have killed off a lot of the soil life. Did you find that our diets and our lifestyles are killing off beneficial microbes in our own bodies? Yeah, well, that's sort of the leading hypothesis amongst uh, microbiome researchers. And they think there's, at this point, two main factors for that, which are certainly since around World War II, our intake of antibiotics has increased hugely. And that is sort of the equivalent, you know, of a pesticide or an herbicide but right inside of our bodies. And, you know, in some cases, there are some really bad actors that gain a foothold, and you do want to have ways to exterminate them. But the whole problem with the antibiotics is that some are very broad spectrum, and so you're taking out all of our allies along with, you know, the one or two bad actors. So antibiotics have certainly had some effect on our microbiome. Um, the other thing, which is not quite so straightforward as to how it might impact our microbiome is our diet. And that's where there's some really pretty interesting parallels between what's going on with agricultural soils and the microbial life and what's going on with what David and I sort of came to see is this parallel world of soil that is deep within our guts. In fact, right down at the bottom of our gut in our colons, you might liken that part of our anatomy and biology to a garden or to a farm because it turns out that you know that's where the lion's share 
of the trillions of microbial cells that are on and in our bodies actually dwell. It's, you know, it's sort of the creme de la creme, if you will, of the most biodiverse part of our bodies is in our colons. And people don't like to talk about this. Have you encountered resistance? <laughs> no, we don't. It's, we call it, you know, the least loved part of the body. We've been doing some, some talks on the book in the last several weeks, and part of that, the talk includes we've got a, a PowerPoint that goes with it, and we've got some great figures of, of the colon. And, you know, this is pretty much what we have to say to people is, you know, look, we've all got to start thinking very differently and actually talking very differently about our colons because the fact is they are not some kind of onboard garbage can at all. They are this alchemical cauldron in which medicinal compounds are being produced that are not only just absolutely critical to the health of our colons, but it's looking like some of those compounds actually diffuse into our bloodstream and um, are distributed throughout the rest of our body. So what we really have is, is not an onboard garbage can. In many ways, it's like this onboard pharmacy, and it's our microbes who are you know, conjuring up the drugs that fill up our pharmacy shelves right there in our colon. Well, this conjures up what might be a dumb question for either of you, David or Anne, and that is, are the microbes that literally allow plants to feed, are they similar or different to the microbes in our guts that enable our own lives? Well, one thing about the human microbiome is that many of these microbes live nowhere else except in our gut. So in that sense, they're indigenous to us and they are not found anywhere else. There's many discoveries yet to be made, however, in the microbiome of the soil and of our bodies. And one of the challenges in this field is that you used to be able to get a microbe and culture it in a lab and you'd know what it was and what it looked like and what it did. But vast, vast majority of, of bacteria and many other microbes, you can't culture them outside of their native habitats. So whether that's the soil or the gut, we still don't, I think, quite know if there might be some overlap between maybe a few of the things that are in our bodies and a few of the things that are in our soil. We do know that the functions of these microbes are identical in that in the soil, they're breaking down plant-based organic matter. And the very same thing is happening in our colons. We humans lack many of the enzymes that are needed to break down the complex carbohydrates or what, you know, chemists call polysaccharides in the plant foods. And so, you know, we send them down the hatch, they pass through our stomach, through our small intestine, more or less undigested. Then they hit the colon and then that's where the breakdown begins. So it's sort of like one big mulch fest down there. Uh, I think it would be really interesting to to do a comparison of, you know, what do we find in the soil microbiome versus the gut of humans. You've taught me something I just didn't know, you know, and I should have known by now. Uh, I always thought that it was the stomach that broke down food and, and that's where we got our nutrients, but you're saying no, it happens much lower down. Well, what, what's interesting is is the stomach's really sort of filled with gastric acids, and so there's dissolving of food starts in the stomach. But the absorption of the nutrients in the food, that doesn't happen until small intestine and colon. And so the foods that we have the enzymes to break down, much of that is absorbed in the small intestine. So that's, that's like your simple carbohydrates. It's broken down, easily absorbed in the, in the small intestine. It's the larger and more complex 
molecules that pass into the colon, and that's where our microbiota get to work on them. It's actually, they're actually fermenting them. Another way to maybe think about your colon, I don't know if this is appealing to to your listeners or not, but I'll just put it out there. It's, in a way, you know, the whole rage about getting your, your sauerkraut crock pot out and fermenting cabbage or other vegetables or foods, we've got an onboard fermenter, and that is our colon. So that's where much of the digestion and absorption of other kinds of foods happens, is in the colon. Well, now, David, you wrote that civilizations can fall when the soil is exhausted or eroded. Is it going too far to start to worry now that our species could be threatened if we similarly endanger microbes in our own bodies, say with antibiotics or with chemicals or any other modern thing, even even radiation, for example? Well, you know, I, I think that it, it's probably fair to say that in, in much the same way that sort of the um, degradation of the soil on the outside environment can endanger the health of civilizations, that the degradation of the inner soil within us in terms of our, our microbiota and how it's supported can endanger our, our own individual health. And it certainly raises questions in terms of, like, if we ever get off this planet and engage in sort of like long-distance space travel, we can't go alone. We've got to bring, we're bringing a whole bunch of, of passengers along with us. We've got to figure out how to care for them. And I, I think it, the common element here, in, in my mind, is that what it really suggests we need to do is to reorient both agricultural and medical practices around trying to cultivate and feed the, the beneficial microbes that help sustain the fertility of the soil and help sustain the activity of, of our immune system and, and the health of, of, our, of our inner soil, the health of our colons, and all those uh, metabolites that the fiber-fermenting bacteria in our colon actually work for us and, and produce for us. Uh, and that's sort of a different way of thinking about those kinds of practices. You know, we're a remarkably clever and remarkably resilient species. I'm personally not terribly worried about us going extinct over any of these issues. Uh, I used to be much more worried about essentially what may happen to civilization in terms of, of the soil. I actually think there's ways, though, to solve these problems. And they're, they're far simpler than I thought like a decade ago in terms of we can have intensive agriculture capable of feeding the world. We just have to do it differently than we do it today. And if we think about the maintenance of, of what I call the, the sort of the inner garden of, uh, the, in the inner soil of our colon, you know, if we rethink about the nature of what we eat, the sort of the balance of foods that we eat, and so that we're sure that we provide the fiber fermenters in our colons with an adequate diet, then, you know, we can start, I think, turning around both this sort of um, epidemic of chronic diseases that have started to affect us as well as try and turn around the, the long-term societal epidemic of soil degradation that has plagued not only societies through history, but that is a serious problem uh, in the modern world as well. We just have to think differently about these processes and, and start to work with and cultivate our microbial allies rather than orienting our, our practices and our chemical uses around trying to take out the pathogens while inadvertently uh, harming our allies. Do you folks have a web page, a Facebook spot, or a Twitter feed that listeners should know about to follow up? Yeah, we sure do. Our website is dig2, that's the number 2, grow, dig2grow.com. And then that's also our Twitter handle, which is at dig2grow. And then uh, as far as Facebook goes, we're there under the title of the book, The Hidden Half of Nature. Listeners, I'll put some links to the new book, the older one, and a couple of YouTube videos in my show blog at ecoshock.info. 
David R. Montgomery is a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, and he's the winner of a $500,000 MacArthur Foundation Genius Award back in 2008. His seminal book, still definitely worth a read, is Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. Now David and co-author biologist Anne Bilkay have released a new book just hitting the stores and Amazon. It's called The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. David and Anne, it's been a pleasure having you on Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, yeah, it's been a real blast. Thank you. Okay. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Mm-hmm.